Thank you for listening to the Sunday School Teaching Ministry of Pastor Luke Pollock at the Home Church of Lodi, California. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. Our prayer is that this message from God's Word will renew your heart and mind today. All right. Well, good morning, everybody. Good job braving the storm and being here. I'm excited to open up the Word of God. We're going to open up to Song of Solomon, uh, chapter 2 today. Song of Solomon, the most maybe unique book in all of the Bible. Uh, there is just nothing else like it in all of Scripture. Uh, you, it's, just a, it's just a very, very unique book. It's a love song. Uh, remember, it's a love song song. It's the song of songs. It's Solomon's greatest hit. Of a thousand and five songs that he wrote, this was, it says, the song of all of his songs. It's, uh, it's the journey of a romantic relationship through the eyes of a man and a woman who are deeply in love. It goes from attraction to, well, all the way to the wedding and even some marital strife <laughs> that we're going to see later on. Love Intimacy, sex, is talked about frankly and approvingly. Uh, it's clear that God wants husbands and wives to enjoy their marriage. And this is a book, it's also a wonderful picture, though, of the love that Jesus has for his bride, the church, and that is every believer. Now, we are so blessed, really. If you think about it, we are so blessed as Christians to have the Song of Solomon in the middle of our Bibles. It's like God's stamp of approval on your romantic relationship with your spouse, and, he said, and God's saying, go for it. Enjoy one another. Now today, we're going to go pick up the story where, of this couple in what we might call the courtship stage. Um, maybe, it's, the, the point is, it's a, it's, it's a lack of a better term. You know, the word courtship is out there, we, it gets thrown around. I just don't know of another better word to use, honestly. Um, This couple, they're past the dating stage. They're serious about marriage, but they're not married yet. And maybe we could call it pre-engagement. But in this stage, a couple is usually uh, head over heels for each other, and frankly, it's it's hard for them to keep their hands off each other. All right, let's just be honest. But what we're going to see today, and that's kind of the theme of where we're going, this couple is going to commit to self-control. This is then a courting couple's decision to wait for marriage. A courting couple's decision to wait for marriage. Now, <clears throat> we're going to talk about premarital sex. We're going to talk about cohabiting and all of that. And we don't get a chance to talk about that too often. And I know not everybody is in this stage, what we're talking about, stage of life. But why do we believe what we believe? Why is it important that we follow God in this area? You know, we all know that when there's a couple that really loves each other, there's an internal battle with these intense physical feelings to come together in this area. And it's, it happens, and it's just a big pull before marriage. But God says, wait. Wait until marriage. So there's this tension, uh, and it's a moral tension that every couple that's truly in love goes through. 
Uh, when I was about 17 or 18, I, I worked as a service writer at the car wash over there on Hammer Lane in Stockton, the big one in front of the uh, Stockton Auto Center. And I was doing Bible college at that time, and Elaine and I were serious about getting married. And um, several of my coworkers who were around my age, some a little bit older, uh, would talk to me about their girlfriends and, and their relationships and all of that. Uh, they didn't have, they weren't believers, and, and they were... They were all over the map on this stuff. Um, and, you know, they, uh, they, they would tell me, and, well, we talked about all kinds of different things, but, but I would tell them, you know, I'm, I'm locked in, you know, for marriage, and I'm excited. Uh, I'm not going to have sex with my girlfriend. <laughs> I'm not going to do it. Um, and I remember a couple conversations about premarital sex in, in particular. One guy was surprised that I wasn't living with, with her, and he was really genuinely surprised because his dad, he was living with his girlfriend, and he said, my dad told me that I need to live with my girlfriend because we need to try, try it out first. We need to figure this out, see if it works. Um, then, of course, there were the more brash guys that I would talk to, you know, who love talking to the church guy about this subject. And then, you know, one, one, one guy asked me, uh, don't, don't you want to test drive the car before you buy it? And, you know, that kind of stuff. And I'm, sh I'm sure we've all heard the, that terminology and heard that kind of uh, thinking. Now, that, this idea of living together before marriage has been the predominant view for quite a while in America. It used not to be the way, this way, but it has been for a long time. In fact, today's stats show that 70% of couples live together before marriage. But does it work this way? Does living together actually make sense? Does it make marriage better to test drive the car first? If, if that were the case, if that's, that's going to make marriage better, then we should expect to see lower divorce rates among those who are living together first. It would be, they would have better marriages, things would go smoother. But is that what we see? Well, every time they study this, every single study shows that that's not the case. One recent study shows that couples who live together before marriage are 48% more likely to divorce. It also leads to more abortions, more STIs, and a host of other emotional issues. As Christians, you know, it's a no-brainer. Um, we do it, we do this because God said so. God has laid it out very clearly, don't do this. And so we trust God, we know he has our best interest at heart. He's always right, he tells the truth. And so we just say, God, you, you must be wise on this, and I'll obey you. But even if, even if I didn't believe the Bible, I still wouldn't suggest that people live together. It's not even close. It's just very obvious it doesn't work. Now, I get it. Any romantic relationship, there's going to be this pull of hormones and this physical desire. And let me just remind everybody, as we read through the Song of Solomon, we remember that that pull toward each other is a good thing. It's even a God thing. We want to see this desire in a couple. If, if you don't see that desire in a couple, uh, th then maybe they shouldn't be married. But once you're married, this is such a healthy thing. As somebody has said, and I love this, the devil does everything he can to get a couple, couple together sexually before they get married and to get a couple apart sexually after they get married. But there's so much good in waiting for marriage. Uh, this tension between our desires and obedience to God, what it does is it helps us build uh, good spiritual muscles. It exercises it, all that tension, 
helps us build good self-control, and we get the Spirit's help. We learn how to walk in the ways God wants us to walk. That's what we're going to see today in the Song of Solomon. Our, this couple is getting closer to marriage. They're now in this, what we might call, again, courtship or pre-engagement stage. Now, again, as a lead-in here, there's no specifically laid-out pattern in Scripture on how this is supposed to go down. Not every relationship, there's not a uh, cookie-cutter method that every, every relationship has to go through. And by the way, um, we, we do see, though, principles and boundaries that God has set up uh, for couples in this stage, but, but every story is going to look a little different. They even look a little different in Scripture. And for the couples, the, the examples there. But for a Christian couple who's faithful in church, we see something along these lines. Okay, this is, I'm going to give you just quick six stages that I've noticed and that you kind of seen a pattern of in the past. Stage one might be called the meeting and dating stage. Or, and when I say dating, by the way, the word, another word that I prefer is evaluation. <laughs> What we're doing in a date is evaluating. That's the whole idea here. So there's that first stage where you're just kind of meeting a person and you're evaluating. Uh, this is, again, like we talked about last week, we're evaluating whether this person is a Christian, a strong Christian, whether they have good character, and then the chemistry that really, if there is something there, Christ, character, chemistry. The second stage is what we might call exclusive dating. Once you kind of move past this kind of meeting each other and evaluating, then you move to something more exclusive. You've defined the relationship, uh, the, the, the man has asked the father, and you're moving now into something a little more exclusive. Stage three might be called serious evaluation. This is where you're going to talk about serious issues, theological issues, family issues, personality issues, etc., etc. And you go through the gamut. There should be lots of evaluation. And if it all goes with ease, then and, and you seem, it seems good, then you move on to the next stage. Stage four might be called courtship. And that's when you allow yourself fully to fall in love. Again, a term that it's hard to find another term. <laughs> fall in love. Love is something, you know, you don't necessarily fall into like it's a big hole in the ground, you know. I just, oh, I just fell in. Um, so falling in love is kind of an interesting term, but you, you decide I'm allowing myself to go get head over heels for this person. All of this stuff has just warmed our hearts, and we, I can see myself being a lifelong partner with this person. And you let love then mature during this period. And who knows how long each one of these stages might last, but you have to let love mature. Then stage five might be called engagement. Uh, you, you, get, you propose, you get engaged, and at that point you're making a lifelong commitment, and that stage probably should be kind of short. Last stage, of course, is marriage. See, once we do that, all the groundwork is laid, and it, it's a good place for a healthy romantic life. Now, again, I'm not saying that's how, that's how it's exactly supposed to go, but you kind of see that pattern in, in a lot of Christian couples. This is not a command of God. But, you can, uh, but just as with anything in life, when you're in one of these stages here, um, you can let your passions or your feelings run ahead of wisdom. And that, we ha- we, that happens in our lives in all kinds of different ways. You start letting your passions or your desires run ahead of God's wisdom, um, you're going to get yourself in trouble. And of course, these pu- this pull for each other, for, two, for a, a, a male and a female, there's so much pull there. And um, if you let your passion get ahead of wisdom, you are going to mess everything up. Everything that God is trying to do, this pattern, this thing he's trying to build for you to have a good marriage in the end, 
it is just gonna screw things up. Now thank God he can restore the years the locust has eaten. Thank God for people that have messed up, if you will. Remember, like what somebody said, Jesus was a carpenter. That means he rebuilds things, and uh, he can rebuild things. But you don't even want to start off on the wrong foot. When a Christian couple has premarital sex, they hurt themselves personally. They hurt the other person in the relationship. They hurt their Christian testimony, and they hurt the heart of God. And one of the fruits of the Spirit, if you go to Galatians, one of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. So today we're gonna see the heights of passion in this couple. I mean the heights of passion. She is, they both want to be married. But you're all gonna, also gonna see the wisdom of the fruit of self-control. All right, so here we go. The first thing we're gonna look at is a God-given desire, this God-given desire. Remember again, this is a love song, so it's a very passionate, very emotional, it's, it's, a, it's a song, it's poetic. Verse four, he brought me to the banqueting house and his banner over me was love. This is the girl talking, the maiden. She remembers back when their love went public. She, she's dreaming about that moment when her beloved brought her to the banqueting house. This is a public place of eating. And she says, his banner over me is love. Are you having trouble getting the verses up here? Okay. <laughs> Not working for you? There we go. Okay, let's see if you can do it now. All right. Sorry for that pause there. She's going to help me. Um, all right. The banqueting house is a public place of eating. She says, this, his, his banner over me is love. So a banner. A banner was used on the battlefield to identify regiments. If, some, if they're waving the banner, you know where you got to go. Um, and so she's saying here about her, her man, she's saying... It, it's as if he raised a banner over my head publicly declaring his love for me. He wanted everybody to know this is my gal. This is the one I love. Uh, like what one theologian said, he says, she is proclaiming that the love which the king has for her is evident to everyone. He does not say one thing to her in private and contradict that in public. He is not ashamed of his love for her, so he is glad for all to see it. Now, and for a king to go public with his love like this, this is Solomon, for him to go public with his love was a very big deal. Today, you know, it's when he changes his relationship status on social media. Wow, that's his banner. By the way, married couples, <clears throat> how do you treat each other in public? How do you treat each other in public? This is a great way to think of it. This verse is a fantastic way to think and to examine how you treat your spouse. Um, do you treat your spouse as if you're waving a banner of love over them? I'm waving a banner. I love this woman. I love this man. Our words, our tone, our touches should all be tender and affectionate, and um, it should be a banner of love over our spouse. I just don't see a purpose in shaming or even jokingly putting down our spouse in public, or privately for that matter, honestly. But here in the Song of Solomon, this maiden's desire for her man has gotten to a fever pitch, okay? She knows that he loves her, and she is all in at this point, and he is all in at this point, and she has allowed herself to fall in love. She feels it in every inch of her body, mind, and soul, and we know that because look at verse 5. Stay me with flagons, comfort me with apples, for I am sick of love, or lovesick. 
stay, the word stay means sustain, flagons or raisin cakes, and to comfort me with apples or with fruit. It's a way to say that she needs sustenance because she can't eat. She's so lovesick that she can't even eat. Why can't she eat? She's infatuated. She's Twitterpated, whatever you want to call it. She is head over heels for him, and it's just, it's just it, she feels it on every inch of her body. You can just hear, as you read this, the, the ring of love songs, you know? Uh, you hear these love songs talking about how badly they want, love, want each other, and all she can think about is being the wife of this king, or the shepherd, as she calls him. She was ready to give herself wholly to this man who had treated her with respect and gentleness and wisdom. It was so much consuming her that she was lovesick. Now, no one can deny that feeling, those, these feelings of passion when you get to this point in a relationship. Uh, they affect your body. Uh, this is how we're made as humans. I'm gonna give you some interesting thoughts here that I came across from David Guzik. He quotes Dr. Jeffrey Schloss here who studied brain hormones of people who are in love. Okay, now follow me along with this. He says that one of these neurotransmitters is known as phenethylamine. And it floods our brain when we fall in love. It's also fairly high in, uh, in, highly, in high quantities in chocolate. <laughs> uh, yeah. This chemical gives us feelings of exhilaration and thrill and well-being, and in high amounts can lead to a loss of appetite. And that's, this appears to be what's going on for this Shulamite maiden here. This chemical works somewhat in a cycle, at least in a relationship. At the beginning of the relationship, it spikes up. After four or five years, it begins to decline. And interestingly, across cultures, there's a spike in the rate of divorce at about four and, a, four and a half years. This leads some scientists to say that we're made for monogamy, but only in the sense of one partner at a time. And then we're supposed to change partners every five years or so. But Dr. Schloss says that we know this is not true. In the brain, there are completely different pathways. Uh, with completely different chemical mediators. These begin to form at about the four-year point in a relationship, and they contribute to different feelings. Instead of feelings of thrill and I can't eat, they are feelings of deep contentment and gratitude. One of the chemicals that mediates these feelings is oxytocin, which is the chemical, same chemical related to the bonding of a mother together with her infant. Some suggest that relationships have two major phases, attraction and then attachment. The attraction phase is powerful and the kind of condition makes one say, I'm lovesick. But the key to a long-term fulfilling relationship is staying with it past the attraction phase into the attachment phase. There, there are even some counselors who devote almost all their entire counseling practice to trying to help out what they call love junkies, people who are so addicted to phenethylamine phase that they bounce from relationship to relationship without ever coming into a greater, longer lasting relationship fulfillment. One could say, uh, this uh, scholar says, one could say that we're engineered for the longer lasting attachment phase and the attraction phase is meant to be a portal into the attachment phase and not something unto itself. The good news is that as a relationship moves into the attachment phase, the attraction phase recycles. And long married couples often experience the sense of falling in love all over again, several times throughout their marriage. Isn't that awesome? I love how we see the fingerprint of God's design in everything, even in our bodies. 
We can see how God has made us. But all that sciencey stuff right there was not in this girl's mind <laughs> here in Song of Solomon. She's just living in la-la land. She just knows what she feels. And her passionate words of desire continue. Verse 6, listen to this. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand doth embrace me. Okay, this is getting hot and heavy now. And because of the Hebrew form of the sentence and the context, it appears that she's describing, again, her dreams, her desires, something she's anticipating. This is what she wants to happen. He wants, she wants his left hand under her head and his right hand embracing her. Uh, she cannot wait until marriage, which is in chapter three. She dreams of him holding her in a way that only romantic partners do. That's, that's a description there. This is a romantic uh, hugging, <laughs> a left hand under her head and a right hand embracing. This is the natural and good feeling of, of being ready to be married and be able to physically be with one another. She wants him. She wants him deeply. But as we mentioned, these feelings could easily now slip into premarital sex. This is that point where it could easily go right into a place it should not be. But this woman is a person of wisdom. She's a person of self-control. And she sees the beauty and the blessing of delayed gratification. And so in the next verse, we're going to see her restraint. And this is what we're going to call the God-empowered restraint. Look at verse 7. I charge you, O ye daughters of Jerusalem, her friends that are there, by the rose and the hinds of the field, that ye stir not up, nor awake my love, till he please. Again, this is another reason why we would say this is a dream and not that they were actually engaging in this intimate moment like this because the daughters of Jerusalem are right there in the scene with her. So if this was a passionate makeout session, they, <laughs> she, they probably wouldn't be there. But she tells them, by the graceful rose and the hinds of the field, uh, the gazelles and the deer, uh, do not stir or awaken my love until he please, or until the time is right. I believe what she's saying is that the feelings of physical love are there. She feels them so deeply, but I need to keep them asleep until the right time. Don't awaken those. I can't let them out yet. In other words, don't encourage me to go too far too soon. She, I'm not married yet. Now, this is what we could call suppression. The conscious restraint of natural impulses and desires. This is not repression, which is the rejection or denial of feelings, often with shame. That's something totally different. S suppression is you know this is a good thing, this is a fine thing, and, it, and the right time and the right moment, we're gonna, we're gonna partake. But this is what we need to do right now for wisdom's sake, for self-control's sake, for whatever God's purposes are. And suppression is a good thing, and it's a thing we do all the time. With food, for example. Food is a wonderful, God-given thing. Thank the Lord for it. We need it, but we can't throw off all restraint with food. And, it, and when it comes to the physical act of sex, when is the God-given time? When does God say, okay, marriage? Don't jump the gun. The relationship must mature in all other ways, there must be all kinds of things going on first before that physical part is consummated. And that's the, this is part of the problem with cohabiting and premarital sex. It's the cart before the horse. It's the physical aspect of lifelong commitment without, listen, the security 
of maturity and commitment first. And that's a dangerous combination. What happens in a cohabitation situation is that the couple makes a half commitment. Let's try this out and see if it works. That's not a commitment. That's half a commitment. And then, so basically you're saying, I have one foot in the door and one foot out the door and we'll see how this goes. But then, now I'm gonna have sex with you and this is extremely bonding. Sex, in the Bible, God calls it a oneness that takes place. Science says it's oxytocin that's released and there's this emotional bonding that happens between two people. And you don't forget that person that you have partaken that with. And we'll talk a little bit more about that next week. So now you have this half commitment, and th- but also this extreme bonding situation that's going on. So now there's this confu- confusing blend of you're mine, but not really. And I, I might leave you, but I might not. But now we're kind of stuck in this phase for years because we're so bonded. It's so hard to break free from this now that we've had this physical intimacy. And I maybe shouldn't be with you, but because we've done this, now I'm attached, and there's all this confusing mess. And the love never matures, and everything else in life that's supposed to mature first never actually gets to where it should be. All the flowers that should be growing are just stunted in their growth. See, God's plan for sexuality is so much better. Grow together in all areas of life, get all of that mature, and get that commitment going. Make sure this is the person that you love, that, that, that God wants you to be with. Uh, make that lifelong commitment on your wedding day, and then by that time, you are ready to handle the deepest level of human oneness there is, that's known to man. And it will only get better then from that point if you do it God's way. Not worse. But humanity has completely wrecked God's plan. You know it as well as I do, The world's idea of sexuality is out of control today. And it's getting worse by the day. All sorts of perversion in every way known to man. That's why it's so simple when we get back to what God, it's very simple. One man, one biological man with one biological female for life, you do this God's way. Do it God's way, you won't regret it. The maiden says, do not stir or awaken love until it pleases, until it's the right time. She saw that she needed to do this the right way. As much as those passions and feelings were going, she needed to keep her eyes on the prize. And what does this all, all this waiting lead to? Look, we see next, and that is a God-ordained commitment. Now, what we're about to see next here is the end of the courtship stage and the beginning of the engagement or the betrothal stage. I believe this is Solomon's proposal, what we're about to read here. It's poetically described, and it's as viewed through the eyes of the maiden. And we're going to go through verses 8 through 13. Follow along. The voice of my beloved. Behold, he cometh, leaping upon the mountains, skipping upon the hills. My beloved is like a roe or a gazelle or a young heart, a deer. Behold, he standeth behind our wall. He looketh forth at the windows, showing himself through the lattice. My beloved spake and said unto me, Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. For lo, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth, the time of the singing of birds is come, and the voice of the turtle is heard in our land. The fig tree putteth forth her green figs, and the vines with tender grape give a good smell. Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. 
notice that he keeps saying, come away, come away. He's asking her to join him on this journey of life with him. And what a beautiful scene. He's proposing, come, uh, pledge your life to me. What a beautiful scene. First we see him behind the wall, then in the court, then at the window of her room, inviting her to join him. Then he starts talking about the winter being passed and the springtime that it has come. In other words, darling, our, our, the, all the winter of waiting is past now. It's felt like winter, it's been horrible, but now springtime is here. We're gonna get married. Our lives are gonna be wonderful. We've waited for this day. We've, it's gonna be so great together. Come away with me. Come out of this village and into the king's palace. I'm inviting you to live with me. Pledge yourself to me. You know, again, this so aptly describes the optimism of a young couple in love. They can only think about springtime ahead, you know. It's all been winter. It's only going to be great, and that's okay. There's a wonderful optimism in this time of life. You know, I've, I've done enough premarital counseling and weddings to see that uh, anything that I say to a couple about the challenges of life that may come in their marriages, it's like, um, you know, it's like, okay, forget it. I'll, we'll, we'll, I'll see you when we get there, you know. Uh, all they can see is springtime and flowers and birds and all this kind of stuff. And, and that's wonderful. It is, it is a good time to be thinking that way and, and, and a precious thing. But there's a great spiritual picture here that I want to bring out. You know, when we see the picture of Christ here, our groom who invites people to come out of their village of hopelessness Come out of that village of hopelessness and, and into my royal family with me. God calls us to be saved and, and the way we, we, we have to come to him is through faith. We answer by saying, yes, Lord. I, will, I trust you, I'm in your family. And when we do, we, we find that life is always better with him by our side. It is like springtime. The future is always brighter for the Christian. And we have this peace in every circumstance. No matter what you're going through, you have this peace that I'm married to the Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for calling us into his family. And as we look back to the couple in the story here, though, we don't see an official response from the maiden. She doesn't say yes to the dress, but it's obvious that she does say yes to her throughout this whole book. So Solomon invites her to step out in confidence. Don't be bashful. Look at verse 14. Oh, my dove, thou art in the clefts of the rock and the secret places of the stairs. Let me see thy countenance. Let me hear thy voice. For sweet is thy voice, and thy countenance is comely or beautiful. He desires to see her countenance, to hear her voice. He wants to look into her eyes. He wants to talk with her about their future. He just wants to hear what she has to say, and, and he wants to share what he has to say. Everything about her is sweet and beautiful to him. He longs for her just as much as she longs for him. But as they talk, there is something very important to them and that is, they want to make sure that nothing comes between this love that they have. Look in verse 15. Take us the foxes, the little foxes, that spoil the vines, for our vines have tender grapes. They talk about it, and, they, and he says, I want to get rid of any little fox that might come to try to spoil our young love that we have. In the early stages of a relationship, a couple must be on guard for little things that can become big things. I mean, really, in any stage of life, any stage of a relationship, you've got to be careful about these little things that might turn into big things. But in a new relationship, sometimes a selfish spirit can uh, happen, uncontrolled desire for 
one another, mistrust, jealousy, pressure to please others, guilt of premarital sex, stubbornness, lack of forgiveness. There's a host of things that could come between and could be little foxes that ruin a, a, a relationship. But notice that it says, take us the foxes. It's the job of both partners to keep things out of their relationship that shouldn't be there. You know, a good relationship really is two people who really love the Lord and their vertical relationship is right. They love the Lord so much that they're making sure it's two individuals that are healthy and are doing what God wants them to do, coming together, and that's how you then have a healthy relationship. Usually there are no, as somebody has said, there are no marriage issues, really, in life. There are only you issues and me issues. <laughs> if I have issues, I'm going to bring it into my marriage. If you have issues, you're going to bring it into the marriage. We have to be very careful about those things. There's a great spiritual lesson here as well, though. Hudson Taylor brought out this verse, and he said he thought of those little foxes as things that may ruin our relationship with Jesus. Here's what he said. He said, the enemies may be small, but the mischief done great. And how numerous the little foxes are. Little compromises with the world. Disobedience to the still small voice and little things. Little indulgences of the flesh to, ne to the neglect of duty. Little strokes of policy, doing evil and little things that good may come. And the beauty and the fruitlessness of the vine are sacrificed. So individuals and couples, we need to learn how to deal with these little foxes in our lives. And when the, these things are dealt with in a relationship, there is such oneness and intimacy. After all, he has said and done what she says. Here, verse 16, my beloved is mine and I am his. He feedeth among the lilies. She's so excited, and this is where we see their, uh, their beautiful intimacy here. We, my beloved is mine, and I am his. He feedeth among the lilies. So she is so excited about their exclusive love. He is mine, I am his, and that's how it should be. This is a monogamous relationship, one man, one woman cleaving to one another. As we know, Solomon screwed this up later on. But there is a feeling of belonging here. This is how it should be leaving and cleaving to one another. There's, Paul told us that there is a sense in which a husband and a wife give their bodies to one another. There's a belonging. At the end of this verse, she says, he feeds his flock among the lilies. Now, lips <laughs> are called lilies in, the, in Song of Solomon chapter 5, verse 13. So the maiden is probably dreaming here about being smothered with kisses. <laughs> Especially when you read verse 17, until the day break and the shadows flee away, turn my beloved and be thou like a roe or a young heart upon the mountains of Bether. Again, she's dreaming. She looks forward to this passionate love that they will soon be able to partake in after marriage. The term, the word Bether refers to, means separation. There is no known location called Bether, uh, mountains of Bether. In other places in the book here, breasts, a woman's breasts are called mountain of spices and a mountain of myrrh. So you can probably figure out what she's referring to here when she <laughs> says, the gazelle and the deer come on the mountains of Bether. That's what I want. Uh, but notice, <clears throat> it does not indicate that he did what she was asking for or what she dreamed of at this time. It's just her longing for marriage, longing for that day. And again, in context, we see that this couple is using this kind of restraint that God desires. 
but the heat is definitely being turned up. And this relationship is, is moving toward a wedding, and it's approaching. And what we see next is hard to interpret. Uh, in this, I'm just going to read through these next few verses quickly, but it appears to be a dream sequence, and uh, that's what most uh, scholars would say, and that's what it looks like to me as well. While she is sleeping, she has a nightmare. She dreams that she can't find her beloved. Look at verse, or chapter 3, verse 1. By night on my bed, I sought him whom my soul loveth. I sought him, but I found him not. So in this dream, she wakes up in a panic. She can't find the one her soul loves. So what does she do? Verse two, I will rise now and go about the city in the streets and in the broad ways. I will seek him whom my soul loveth. I sought him, but I found him not. Now, obviously, this is a dream. She's wandering through the city streets in the middle of the night looking for him. It wouldn't be something a smart woman would do in real life. But in her dream... She's so in love that she will do anything. She wants to find him, verse th verses three and four. The watchmen that go about the city found me, to whom I said, saw ye him whom my soul loveth? It was but a little that I passed from them, but I found him whom my soul loveth. I held him, and I would not let him go until I had brought him into my mother's house and into the chamber of her that conceived me. Now what's going on here? I like what G, G. Campbell Morgan said. He said, this is a very natural and very beautiful thing. Love creates a perpetual dread, lest the loved one should be lost. That's what she's doing. She's just thinking, I don't want to lose this. This dream is revealing one of those common worries of a young person in love, especially oftentimes women. They just want to secure this thing and not have any chance of being apart. In her dream, she, she finally finds him and brings him home to her mother's house. That's it for this guy. Now he's at the mother-in-law's house. That's, sorry, fella. By the way, um, being at the mother's house shows that this is not a sexual thing here. Even though they go to the mother's room, it says. This would not be acceptable by a mother before they're married to do this kind of thing. But what a great reminder for us as believers to hold Jesus and don't let him go. I found him and I won't let him go. Jesus certainly doesn't let go of us. We need to let, lay hold of him and not let go. But she seems to break out of this dream then and give these important words. Now, when you see something twice in Hebrew literature, it's, it's for emphasis. So here's verse five. We've seen it before already. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the rows and by the hinds of the field, that ye stir not up, nor awake my love, till he please. Yes, I'm madly in love. Yes, all I want is to be married and to secure this thing. Yes, I even have physical desires to be with him. But no matter what, I will not awaken these passions until the time is right under God. This is a Christian couple's testimony here. It's a Christian couple's tension, and it may, it's real. But self-control brings so many blessings later. And we're going to see the payoff next week. You're going to see the wedding and then we're going to see the wedding night. Pray for me, okay, as we go through that. <laughs> but, but, but I do want to encourage all of us to commit to doing things God's way. That's what this is really all about, every area of life, including this. We do it God's way. It's always, always better in the end. Moses, said, Moses was one of those ones. He, he chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. There's always the pleasures of sin for a season. And then the season ends, and it's over. Don't let the devil have his way in your life.
We hope you enjoyed listening to the preaching and teaching from God's Word today. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. From all of us here at The Home Church in Lodi, California, thank you for joining us.